1: Before you get to this podcast, some news from me, Charles Cook, editor of National Review Online and co-host of the Mad Dogs and Englishman podcast, which is now a live proposition once more. Yes, it is back, having taken a bit of a hiatus. You can find it everywhere. You could find it before. You can find it on nationalreview.com. You can find it at iTunes, at Google Play, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn. And if you had let your subscription expire because you thought it was over, so did we. You
0: can resubscribe at no cost whatsoever whenever you get a chance.
1: Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting, well, we'll see if it's exciting, edition of the uh, Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by uh, Charles Krauthammer's Things That Matter. We'll talk about more, more about that in a little bit. Um, it is also brought to you by, and this is not really brought to us by, I just, I'm supposed to plug it, and I'm glad to, and I'll get to this too later, the uh, fifth annual William F. Buckley Prize Dinner, which will be in Chicago on October 18th. I'll give you more details about that. I will be there, um, as will the entire sort of cannonball-run cast of stars of National Review. But today, we have a very special guest, in, in almost every sense of the word special. We have one sunny Bunch. You may know him from such podcasts as The Weekly Substandard, an occasional guest, and you're like the producer of Write and Writer? Yeah, I, uh, I, I You're the bleeper. I'm the bleeper. Yeah, and uh, I
2: make sure the microphones are in semi-working order. Okay. So, and you—I
1: first met you, I think, when you were still at the Washington Times. Is that right?
2: Possibly, maybe even before that, at the Weekly Standard. Maybe we the Weekly Standard. Okay. All right. And um, I've been floating around DC for a while. Yeah, I've seen you pushing
1: your shopping cart. Um, so, uh, friends of mine, our listeners—let me put it this way: listeners may not be familiar with the Weekly Substandard. They may not be f- familiar with the sort of rabid duff rocky uh rage that any uh bad mouthing or slighting of the weekly sub substandards elicits on twitter mm. there are literally twitter threads i mean the super thread how long mega thread the uh, mega thread how, how long is that thing now i you it
2: it stretches beyond time yeah back into the before the long long ago it's uh in, it's like out the, the, the frost bridge or something out of the primordial ooze <laughs> came the mega thread and it dominates uh, anyone who comes into its path. Yeah, I've had. I I I will be honest. I it's sometimes, occasionally, have to mute the thread so I can actually get work done. Yeah, but but it it you know if you stay on the if you stay on the right side of the mega thread,
1: you'll be fine. Yeah, I, I am not on the right side of the you, mega thread. You are. You're <laughs> one of the enemies of the state. There's there's actually a chart, and so we're not going to get too deep into. It's not even. The subculture, it's really a, it's a nano culture um, of the mega thread. They're going to start a whole new thread (laughs) just just to attack you. uh, But look, I am a fan. You you are the second uh, of the three weekly substandard uh, hosts to be on my podcast.
2: Yeah, well, I we you know uh, JBL and I were a little bit upset when Vic came in here and de- did Gene. I know we weren't <laughs> we weren't thrilled with that, and that's why I've been I've been a little bit hesitant to you know
1: come on myself and some wounds. I, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was one of the greatest crossover episodes of a podcast <laughs> in all of human history. I mean, so uh, but since we're on this subject, and I promise we'll get to weightier things as we move forward. Oh, I should also say that you're a columnist or contributor. I don't know what the title they give you at the Washington Post. Yeah, contributor. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And um that's where you um traffic in some of your more outrageous Star Wars revisionism, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I have a couple questions. I hope listeners will bear with me. You you bore with me last week with David Bonson, where we got deep into the weeds of pre-millennialism, or however you pronounce it. I can't do it. So we'll just start here. The opening of the weekly substandard is often much longer. Let me put it this. Way. The throat-clearing conversation about how is your uh-huh. week... Yeah. is often longer than the actual substance of the weekly substandard okay okay is I, I, do your listeners care more about the Chinese buffet that Vic had in Greater Shalandria than they actually do about your hot takes on movies? Well so here's here's what what is the actual
2: substance of the weekly substandard that's that's the question here we need to we need to bring it back. It's like a level. Cone kind of thing. It's because like one it, hand it, clapping, right? I mean, you know, in theory, we have this ta- we are going to talk about, you know, Mission Impossible this right. week on the episode that goes up on Thursday. Subscribe at iTunes. But you know, what do what do people actually want? We have found, and perhaps this is why we have a smaller audience than some other uh, more selective, a uh, more selective, more you know, more discerning uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, group of fans. But we've we found that people actually kind of like the. The interactions between us before, and uh, I mean, it's like any, it's like any um, somebody. Maybe it was Rob Long. I can't remember. Said that anybody who is good at podcasting is just doing this because they're bad at radio, right? (laughs) So, like the you know, but but the but the idea there is in a slightly less snarky sort of way is is a good one that like the reason people listen to morning zoo type shows, right? Or you know, the sports junkies, which I listen to on on the radio here in DC, or Howard Stern, you know, whatever they 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 listen to it in large part for the interviews with celebrities or the interviews with sports reporters or whatever but they also like the interaction between the hosts or between mm-hmm. you know the main guy Howard Stern and his minions like part that's all part of the show yeah now granted we we probably are a little self indulgent on this <laughs> on this angle of it uh where we're probably you know pushing it and and like i said we have probably limited our universe of listeners by creating a series of totally impenetrable uh, in jokes that have yeah. developed over the last eighteen months or so, yeah. but you know, for the for the for the the loyal few, uh, I hope they're they having a good time. I, you know,
1: look, full disclosure: I'm a listener,
2: um, and it's kind of like The Wire, but in podcast form. That's that's, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but like every now and then, my wife really wants to be a listener, right? Because she's a fan of yours. She's a, she loves Jonathan. Has known Jonathan forever, but she loves Vic, and like I've been. You know, I was in the, in, I was working in the AEI building when the Weekly Standard was started, and my wife sort of worked in that orbit, down the hall, and we've been calling the Weekly Standard the substandard since its inception, mm-hmm. right? And so, she has a sort of a, an emotional commitment to this. But every now and then, when we're on long drives, I'll say, "If you want to listen to the Weekly Substandard." And the last time I tried, you guys were talking something about D D, which I could totally uh, grok, right? I mean, yeah. not every detail of it. And it got so... Role-playing games? Was this the superhero
2: role-playing game? It might have been. It was ben, a couple
1: yeah. weeks ago. Anyway, my wife, she turned into Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds <laughs> and just started screaming, Nerds! Nerds! <laughs> and... That's not wrong. <laughs> I mean... So... But no, I agree with you entirely about the ensemble thing and people actually care about personalities. And I think this is one of the things that cable news misses is that people get attached to individual personalities more than they get attached to like their worldview. Sure. And um,
2: But even more than that, again, it's like you get attached to somebody else's relationship. Right. Which like I we, – we every once in a while, uh, you know, we'll run into somebody out in the wild who's a fan of the show and they'll come up and they'll say, hey, you know, we loved hearing you guys talk about, you know, whatever. Mostly it's JBL and Vic because they've actually known each other for 20 yeah. years. They worked together for 20 years. Um, I, I worked with them for for much less time, and they were like exotic dancers together. It, it, right? They, I, my understanding is that they have traveled the circuit of brothels uh, yeah, and yeah, other yeah. underworld, gone through cases
1: know. of baby oil together. It's, we don't uh, need to get into weeds on
2: that. Uh, but, uh, but the, but, but, but they will say, you know, hey, we really like. We, it, it is like being in an office with friends, mm-hmm. and like that, I think that's a fair description of it. You know, yeah. how, how how much tolerance you have for that f- will kind of. Uh, determine how much you can enjoy the first twenty or thirty minutes of each show.
1: Yeah. But... Okay. Fair. Now that's all fair. I mean, have, I ever, have you ever heard? I don't know. I, I know I've never told it to you. The the story of the conception of the Five on Fox. No. Okay. So you'll like this. So I only had I I've met I met Roger Ailes a bunch of times, but I only had one serious meeting with him, and so I went to his office at Fox News, and you know when you go to meet Roger Ailes for the first time, you expect to walk into this room with, like, a white tiger on a chain, you know, and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it was a pretty humble office, and he was telling me the story of The Five. And to make it short, when Beck left Fox, Roger knew that—and let's stipulate for all the people who think telling stories about Roger Ailes is problematic, because he was a problematic person, stipulated—he um, was the weirdest mix of, like, Boss hog and Aristotle I ever met. I mean, like, really smart and really crude. Mm. And— So he told me that when they replaced Beck, they were worried whoever – if they gave that shot, that show that spot to an individual host, the ratings would tank and it would ruin their career, right? And it would look like, oh, my gosh, they don't know what to do to replace Beck, right? So he deliberately made The Five a temporary show with just a card table and Mm -hmm. five people. And Ailes was hugely proud of the fact that he got his start in all this in theater. And he he always cast things with a very theatric eye. You know, he's famous as a consultant – where he would visit local uh, television stations. He would go to his hotel and he would turn the volume all the way down and just look at the body language of the hosts. And his view is if if it wasn't worth – if you didn't want to watch a guy or a woman with the sound off, you didn't want to watch him with the sound on, which Mm. is very anti-enlightenment, but Mm. whatever. And so he cast this thing as a theatrical thing. And he said, so what you need is – first of all, you need the matinee idol. Right, and he says that's Eric Bowling. You know, all the women, men want to be him. Women want to sleep with him. I okay. didn't object, but I have problems with all of these characterizations. Right, and then he said, and then you need the comedian, right? You need the funny guy, and so that was he cast Greg Gutfeld as mm-hmm. that, right? And then he said you need the the bombshell sex pot, right? And that's the leg chair, Kim Guilfoyle or whoever. And then he said you need the nice girl, right? Sort of the Marianne from Gilligan's mm-hmm. Island. And he said, you know, he said that's why we picked Dana Perino because she's like the uh, the nice girl at the church social. That this is a quote. I'm not making this up. She's like the nice girl from the church social who you think if you could feed her enough mash whiskey, you could have a really good time with her. But you know you'll never be able to. Mm -hmm. It's like that was oddly specific. And then and then then he said, oh, and then you need the liberal. And, (laughs) And so. And again, this is a quote. He says, I picked the biggest scumbag, degenerate drug addict I could find, which was Bob Beckel. Mm-hmm. And that's how he cast the thing. And he would tell the people during, you know, the run up to it. He says, you know, look, you guys don't get, don't get too big ahead about all of this. I know this show is called the five, but, um, in my mind, it's called the ten because I got replacements for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very strange conversation. Yeah. So I agree with all that. You know, c- chemistry was hugely important and all the rest. Um I just think that sometimes the chemistry goes a little weird. I mean I dig it, but but you're speaking largely the language of my youth. Um so let's switch gears really quickly to the Write and Writer podcast. Sure. I have a specific question. Okay. Is this Aaron Harrison fellow? Yes, Aaron Harrison. Yes. Uh,
2: President of the Beacon, I think. I believe so, yeah. I can't remember yeah, what yeah. exactly. The guy who
1: writes the checks is, sure, is the guy is, who writes the checks. Okay. I don't think I've ever met him. I might have. Um uh, I think he can be very amusing. He's a very interesting guy. Is he playing a character or is that him?
2: Well, uh, what, what you know in in, in in this in this life of ours, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. who this among life us we have chosen. Not, who among when we step in front of a microphone uh-huh. and when we are when we're working the the twitters and you know the social media, who among us is not playing a character of some sort? You know what I. I would say the and if my, you just my, say, my oh, straight if, answer to this. Uh-huh. My straight answer to this is, uh, he is playing himself, but cranked up to about a thirteen. Okay. So if you if you have a zero to ten, he is, um, he is he is over the top. And look, he also you know the whole the, the, the show is right and writer. Uh-huh. So if we have you know if using the kind of Ailes idea, if we have Matt Continetti in the squish chair, right? We need somebody in the right writer. Chair right, right to really kind of pull pull the whole pull the Overton window over yeah no that's or seven notch
1: that's the sense i often get is that it it gives matt the space to be reasonable <laughs> about a lot of things
2: yeah i don't i wouldn't say that we had planned it that way exactly to, I, I i wouldn't say we planned it to make matt look reasonable uh-huh. cuz you know Matt's a reasonable person anyway. Yeah, sure sure, you know, sure, sure, sure. He's a great, great thinker and uh-huh.
1: one of the- Not only a handsome man, but a rights
2: man. of our time. Yes, yes. Um, but, the, but, but, but that is kind of how it worked out is that, you know, again, the the the, the, original, the initial version of the show that we had done was much different and much more kind of free-flowing. Uh-huh. And, but when we kind of shifted to this write and writer idea, it was like, okay, well, we need somebody to be a writer. Uh-huh. And Harrison- I wouldn't say Harrison ever says anything he doesn't actually believe.
1: So he often really does believe that everything that Trump does is genius.
2: Well, I, <laughs> genius is a strong <laughs> word, but I mean, look if you're if you're uh, if, again if you're trying to you know pull it over to the uh-huh. right, okay. he is a, he's he is a legitimate Donald Trump supporter. Sure, 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 sure.
1: I'm not saying he's lying, yeah. but you know, but it's just there are there are times where I I will say he can't be he can't be serious. <laughs> um. So that brings me to you. <laughs> um, oh boy. So for listeners who don't, what, 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 why, rather than have me grotesquely mischaracterize your position, why don't you give me the Sonny Bunch 101 position on the good versus evil of the Star Wars universe?
2: Well, I would, I, I would actually like to hear the mischaracterization. <laughs> I mean, now, uh, so look, the, 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 the Star Wars universe is faintly boring frankly, Mm -hmm. if you just look at it in the way that George Lucas has kind of envisioned it in the first three movies where uh, light is good and dark is bad Mm -hmm. and you've got, you know, these various weird zen kind of uh, all strapped onto the body of a very basic hero's journey. I mean, whatever. The prequels, uh, for all of their failures in storytelling-
1: Which are um, manifest in- Which you
2: can, I mean, you can go through the red letter media- uh, you know, nine-hour breakdown of why the whole prequel trilogy doesn't work. And I think there's a lot of truth to, to much of that. Um, but I will say in retrospect, the one thing that the prequel does is actually kind of lay out the political universe of the Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. And once you start getting kind of into the nitty-gritty, you – you uh, as JVL has put it – JVL is the real progenitor of this whole uh-huh. – Thing, uh, but once you start getting into the nitty gritty of what is what is actually going on, you have a democracy that has failed, mm-hmm. uh, is unable to protect its people or engage in trade and all of that, and the empire is maybe not—it's not a liberal democracy. Certainly, it's not the ideal mm-hmm. that we would strive for, mm-hmm. but it is up against what is a chaotic poorly run organization that is policed by this weirdly aristocratic author- authoritarian jedi order that is accountable to no one mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. and uh you know is the empire that bad now the empire we have we should we should just point out that the empire is nowhere near as vicious in the films as say the first order is uh-huh. right the first order is clearly a you know, right uh, uh, but the but the the empire itself in the movies, you know, you just see guys out there doing their job, working on their ships, getting blown up by space terrorists. But aren't the uh, <laughs>
1: see there we go? See this getting, this... getting
2: blown up by? Okay. I, I mean, so I mean, you well, think well, the rebellion is a terrorist organization? Well, well I, uh, they are literally a terrorist organization. Uh-huh. They are out there destroying government buildings uh-huh. with no legitimate legal authority. Uh-huh. Uh, certainly, um, but also, but but I mean, if you if you just look Were at the founding it, fathers, terrorists. Just if you if you just if you just uh, don't. <laughs> If you look at if you just look at Luke Skywalker he's uh-huh. a he's a he's a he's an impoverished farm boy right who was radicalized by a religious fanatic living in a cave yeah 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 yeah, yeah. to fly his ship essentially into a giant building filled with thousands of people uh-huh. I mean I'm not I'm not saying that that's exactly like 9/11 but it's, <laughs> maybe it's not it's not that far. Up. Maybe it inspired 911. Yeah, possible, you yeah. know? I don't know. Look, yeah. I don't I yeah, you know, I wouldn't have to go through the Bin Laden records yeah. to yeah. see if Star Wars was amongst like the weird anime porn. Yeah, you'd have to go through is. a lot of porn for <laughs> everything had, so. um, No, I mean, look, it's 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 this you know, it is it is a way to have a bit of fun with the series. And the thing and honestly, this is a very uh, amusing early version of owning the libs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because what you what what we found when uh, every time JBL's original story, which is called "The Case for the Empire," you can Google it. Yeah, no, it's a great piece. It's a uh, it's very very entertaining and amusing. But every time that that would circle around on Twitter, and it would do this about once every eighteen months or so, somebody mm-hmm. would find it and be like, "Oh my god, the neocons <laughs> love Empire. Look at this. Look at this Star Wars thing." that they wrote, left-wing Twitter would lose their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like lose their mind and be like, I can't believe anybody would take this seriously. Which and, is exactly what they were doing. <laughs> and so so we it, it would always be funny to just kind of sit there and be like, no, no, it's actually – the empire is good. Yeah. It's unironically good. We
1: love it. Specific- As a defender of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, I'm not opposed to the – and the, to some extent the British Empire. I'm not opposed to the idea that empires can be good. Yeah. Yeah,
2: so. And and I, I, I also do think that there is a, a, a legitimate, unironic good to kind of examining what George Lucas was getting at, right? Mm-hmm. George Lucas has – who knows how – how you know much this is retconning in his own mind. But Lu- George Lucas has always said that uh, the the Empire was supposed to represent America. Mm-hmm. That the 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 Empire was, you know, uh, a force of evil just like America in the Vietnam War age. Now I'm really the, hating George Lucas. And the the, the 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 Ewoks are just uh you know VC trying to take down the invaders of their homeland and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So if we want to think about that, if we want look if you want if you want to make this argument, then Let's talk about the Death Star destroying Alderaan. Is yes, it really?
1: well, see, that's where I want to go because I.
2: It really, I'm... that much different than Hiroshima?
1: Yes, it was. Nah, no, <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. Collective okay. punishment is and genocide are bad, and I, that's that's one of these things that emerges from. It. I will say, look, uh, I wrote a column about it. Um, Jonathan's take about droids being slaves, mm-hmm. I think, is brilliant. Yeah, 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 and Perfect. and I I I I've yet to see a good argument about why he's wrong. Because they're sentient. They call the people who own them their masters. They allegedly feel pain, right? And they have to follow our well, orders. They very
2: explicitly feel pain. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is like a whole, you know, punishing them right. is like a subplot in several
1: of the movies. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I thought... So let me ask you this. the What was the last one? The Last Jedi? What, what are we... The, where, the one where Luke dies. The last, gest- yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Episode eight. the, the, the female robot who tries to lead a, oh, a oh, oh, solo. Are you thinking? Solo, solo, solo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I had a real problem with that. Okay. Be- for this reason. Um, I don't want to say it's problematic. I know that's triggering for you. But, um, uh, the, it's one thing for us to say, hey, look, think about this. And I, and I, I, I think on the merits, I don't think it's a trollish argument. I think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a seer argument. I mean, I, I remember, um, Edward Ludvak did a great, had a great headline for a piece in commentary in the 90s, which asked, What if Bosnians were dolphins? Right. And the whole thing being like, We would be much more outraged about the slaughter of dolphins, right? If the droids can all pass Turing tests, right? And they are sentient, self aware, pain feeling. There's that thing about C three PO actually having a, a deity, right? It has it actually has a religion. Mm-hmm. He says, "Thank the Master, or what? The Creator, thank the yeah, thank the Maker, the Maker." The maker. And so, if you if you take that argument seriously, then it's a serious argument, right? And then in Solo, they kind of had fun with it, mm-hmm. and the idea that it's sort of a joke to think liberating mm-hmm. slaves is sort of a silly, fun little side bit of shtick. Mm-hmm. That kind of bothered me there's something in there that 's irreverent in a nasty way that i kind of that kind of bothered me
2: i there there is we had a serious argument about this on the substandard Matt Cottonetti was actually filling in um, for one of our one of the other guys we had a We had a real and serious argument about whether or not the female droid character was played sincerely or for laughs yeah there was the the argument they made was. Star Wars is woke now that's like mm-hmm. their thing that's their brand, and the actress who played it is like a female you know um a feminist comedian mm-hmm. you know who like does 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 woke shtick as her thing, and that they that that the the droid character was played sincerely seriously arguing for droid rights everywhere mm-hmm. and that it is supposed that it is like a tragedy when she when she is killed. I thought that was insane mm-hmm. I thought that was i thought that that argument. Is is like totally contrary to the actual re- to the actual like what happens in the movie because all of those lines are played for laughs mm. and all the reactions from the other characters are are eye rolls and like oh god now right. and when and when she actually frees the like the droids in the control room or whatever they're like kind of bumbling doing right. uh, physical humor and physical comedy and it kind of throws the whole plan off so I am I'm with you insofar as I think that they were playing this for shtick and and for laughs.
1: But there's a problem there, right? I mean, like, let's say you had an episode of the Star Wars movies where Ewoks are rounded up into concentration camps, mm-hmm. right? And like, oh, look how funny it is—they're trying to escape being liquidated. Mm-hmm. You would sort of see that, like, just because they're alien creatures, doesn't mean that the the architecture of the of of the thing you're playing off of isn't a serious thing. Yeah. Uh,
2: I, look, it, it, I I am kind of with you. Uh, I'm kind of with you, except for the fact that I thought it really worked. At it made me laugh, sure. And because it made me laugh, I mean, look, the death of Stalin also made me laugh. Yeah, 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 no, that's, and the fair. Death, that's fair. And the death of Stalin is about the you know yeah. uh, the most evil people who have ever lived, right. uh, Outside of Nazi Germany, so, right? I, like it's
1: no, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I just think like you know, there's a lot of stuff about portrayal of black people from the early days of Hollywood that we watch now and we cringe, <laughs> right? In the days where we actually have fully functioning, artificially intelligent droids going back and deciding whether or not to liquidate humanity, they're going to watch some of these movies and say, that's not funny.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, look, I think there's a lot of things they're going to look at us and say, well, these, these people got to go. Yeah, that's fair. That's <laughs> fair.
1: So um, you did a big piece, big splashy front cover story for the Weekly Standard uh, was it two months ago, something
2: like that? Yeah, two, three months ago.
1: Something like um, On the new way we watch TV now or sure. something like that. Why don't you run through your basic argument in there and then I will pounce. My b- Although I, I basically agree with you.
2: So. My basic argument is that there's too much TV. Mm-hmm. And because there is too much TV, nothing well, – well, for several reasons, but largely because there is too much TV, nothing from this new golden age of TV will really last into the future. Um, so if you if – you, you should everyone should read the piece, go now, read it, pause this yes. thirty minutes later you come back the The, the argument that i 'm that I was kind of trying to make, and i don 't know if I succeeded was uh, you know uh, there is more good TV now than ever, mm-hmm. and with all of this good TV comes various problems. number one, you've fractured the audience so badly that you can 't really create a monoculture around any show. I mean the most popular shows right now uh i mean i mean like the most vulgarly popular sh- shows like the your cbs comedies and stuff like that do 15 to 17 million right. viewers so 5% of the population is watching the most popular thing that is starkly different from years past when mash would capture you know, 67% of the yeah. nation's eyeballs or whatever whatever the, you know, series finale of that was. So you, 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 have this, you have this world in which you have many, many good things, but almost all of them are watched by between one and five million people. Mm-hmm. And five million is on very much the higher end of shows. I mean, like how many people, I, maybe you know this, I, this, I'm breaking a legal rule here, but how many people watch Mad Men? when it was on
1: oh I don't know, but a couple million probably. Yeah.
2: One million. Yeah. Like generally in the in the one you know, and, and it's hard to it's you know, there are D V R viewings, there are people who catch up on DVD and that sort of thing. So like girls kind of is to... the best example
1: of this. Everyone's talking about it, sure. a huge friggin' hit and it's like four people watch
2: Girls girls I mean girls is the perfect example of this where it's a show that everybody writes about, you know, I write about it, you know, Ross is writing about Slate. National Review, yeah. uh, everyone is writing about this show that maybe like six hundred thousand people are watching, right? You know? So, I, but anyway, so you have a lot of you have a lot of shows like this. So, so there's there's very little agreement on kind of what is actually the best. When you combine that with the fact that the business model of TV is changing between Netflix, uh, Amazon, and kind of the basic cable cable shows, so you know it, it used to be and it still is in in many cases, you get a new episode a week and you watch for 10 weeks and that's the season of the show. Netflix and Amazon have, I think, radically altered the game and not in a good way with their shotgun blast approach to seasons. It creates a kind of race to see who can finish it first right. and everybody has to watch everything really fast to keep up. When you do something like this, you make it hard to go back and watch shows again. And my argument would be
1: and when you do you go back and you binge them again
2: right so yeah. my, my, my argument would be that a lot of the shows from the past that we consider great a show like The Simpsons for instance right mm. a, a show like The Simpsons is a great TV show everyone loves it why do we love it we love it because we watched it over and over again in syndication right it wasn't just that we would watch it once and be like uh, you know uh, Lisa needs braces dental plan like is, <laughs> is like that's like not a thing that would necessarily stick but if you watch it 20 times in syndication right that's a thing that like jumps out at you and it can become a common cultural touch point and you know the website Frinkiac, one of my favorite sites, go to it all the time. You make you can make little gifs of Simpsons lines. It's fantastic. But like I don't think that that website really works without the syndication model. Mm-hmm. And we are basically at a point where we're destroying the syndication model. Like there's no there's no reason to to go back and rewatch things that are being replayed on TBS or you know, your local Fox affiliate or whatever because you've got 17 hours of the handmaid's tale to watch, or you've right. got, you know, um, uh, 20 hours of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt to watch. Like, there's there's just so much other stuff to do. You can't really build that base of repetition.
1: So, you don't have to give me your exact age, but are you a young Gen Xer or an old millennial?
2: I'm a Xennial. So, I'm kind of in that weird in-between. I would say I'm either the oldest millennial or the youngest Xer.
1: Yeah, because I, I think as a generalization, Gen X is the last generation to grow up in a common culture. At least when it comes to things like TV, right? I grew up in a world where you heard about, you heard new songs on the radio, right? Um, I grew up, you know, I came home every day after school and turned on the 430 movie, and that's how I saw all of the great, you know, Tojo production movies, all the Godzilla's, all the, um, Gamera, which was not Tojo, I know, please, people. (laughs) And, um, I, you know, I watched the Planet of the Apes movies 20 times because they would have Planet of the Apes week and it was really exciting. And I also watched a lot of old movies because when you only had four channels, which is what my early childhood was like, it's like, well, I could watch the news or I could watch Day of the Triffids on Channel 9, you know. And um, so I watched Day of the Triffids, right. you know. And so, you know, and I grew up watching a lot of shows in syndication that were way before my time. I Love Lucy. Sure. Twilight Zone, Outer limit. Twilight Zone, for you know, for instance, um, uh, I Dream of Jeannie, You know, pa, uh, John Podartz and I, we can talk about The Odd Couple for hours because I think it was one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Um, but it was so New York centric, and you don't have. There are a handful of things that are like that for people who are younger. Like my daughter, who's fifteen now, can actually have quite fluent conversations with Jack Butler about SpongeBob. Because I think there's still cartoons that kids mm. grow up as a monoculture sure. kind of thing, right? And so there's this, and there's this brief window from when my daughter was the right age that because you watch what what your kid is watching. So like I can talk somewhat about Wonder Pets and a couple of these things, but I think you're right that there's this balkanization. The question is, why are we sure it's a bad thing? Well, I this is it's a new thing. I agree. This
2: is you. not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, this is kind of the 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 way I conclude the piece is, you know, uh, maybe. Maybe streaming is kind of more of a – is a better definition for what we do than we know, right? Like if you look out at a river, it's not like you're like, well, this water is different than the water I saw the day before. It's just you have this kind of unending flow that you look at and you're like, oh, that's nice. And that may be what we have now. We may just have a a situation where, you know, whatever is the new hot thing on Netflix or on HBO or – Amazon or Hulu or you know Showtime or whatever is the thing that everybody watches and then we move on to the next thing. And maybe that's maybe that's fine. It just is different. It's it's a different way to consume art. I mean art has we've created canons of art for as long as we have appreciated art. And if you it, it it's just new. And as but- as someone who is skeptical of things that are new, Yes,
1: uh, although I'll, I'll, let me let me push back on the newness thing for a second, right? So Yuval Levin and I, from different angles, have been – and he's, I think he's working on a book on this, and I'll be much smarter than anything I can articulate here – have been arguing that um, a lot of what we're seeing is actually a reversion to an older model. And I'll give you an example. The example I always use is with um, the news media, right? In the 19th century, you know, de Tocqueville writes about this, you know, Newspapers were like the backbone of community. Newspapers were, most of them were wildly explicitly partisan, right? And so you have the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, right? It was a Democratic Party newspaper. I remember someone telling me once about how the coverage of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, um, if you read just the Republican papers, they would say, Douglas was... So incensed by having been crushed by the, the the master orator, Abraham Lincoln, that, you know, he was left to blubbering tears, you know, as, as, in his defeat. Mm-hmm. And the Democrat papers were like, 10 men had to restrain Lincoln. Such was his rage at being so bested by you know, mm-hmm. Douglas right? Mm-hmm. Sure. And you sort of had to read both to balance it. That changed in the 20th century, largely with a technological change where starting with radio or starting really with a telegram, and then with radio, and then really with TV, where there was this notion of objective media emerged. And that's the thing that everybody today, on the right and the left, has this as this, first of all, it's kind of a BS version of what the media was like in, say, 1965. But it is this ideal of this objective thing, right? And it's like, Walter Cronkite used to end his broadcasts by saying, and that's the way it is, right? Not That's what we think it happened or, you know, but it's this ontological, metaphysical, existential statement about the state of the universe kind of crap. And meanwhile, Europe never went that way. You go go to England and you got the Telegraph, which is kind of like conservative, and you got the Times, which is a Tory, and you got the Guardian, which is Bolshevik, and you go on through it. It doesn't mean they're bad papers, but you just know where they're coming from, Right, right. right? And so now, I think with the rise of the internet, I mean, I saw this when I founded National Review Online, the media started becoming... More grounded to a community again, right? And this great parentheses, which came out of the fact that about two generations of people, starting with the new, with starting with World War One, but then the New Deal and then World War Two, we had we raised a whole generation of people, um, which is one of the reasons why I think the Greatest Generation has many flaws, who thought it was fine to show their allegiance to big institute, big national institutions, and take orders from the federal government, and that's eroding and we are balkanizing again now there's a lot of the balkanizing i hate and there's a lot of add-on knock-on problems with it but in the 19th century you didn't have a Mm monoculture right you had you know uh red badge of courage would come out or or moby dick or whatever it is and it was it's like streaming right (laughs) you know and um the really good stuff would rise to the top but you know if like shows like Breaking Bad and The Wire and The Sopranos are better understood as sort of television versions of novels.
2: Right. So this is the obvious counter to my argument is you know you've always had a giant glut of entertainment, right? Like go back and read all the people who were writing when Jane Austen was writing, right? right? Thousand people you've never heard of, you know, ten thousand books you've never read and will never read, and no one will ever read again. And like Jane Austen, we will have our David Simon's, or you know, or more likely, single shows where you have like somebody, you know, the Sopranos will last. Okay, let's uh, or the Wire. Let's use the Wire because mm-hmm. everybody talks about the Wire being Dickensian and right. you know, the great American novel just on TV. I mean, the the Wire is sixty hours long, mm-hmm. sixty hours long, and while it is certainly not impossible to watch the Wire, like every a lot of people have watched the Wire. I've watched the
1: Wire. Mm-hmm. You've watched the Wire. I've watched the Wire, Wire many times.
2: Um, uh, it is it is still a kind of daunting thing to sit down and do. I mean, what can you do in the time it takes to read? Uh, I actually one of the things I do in my piece is kind of break down all the various things you can do. You know, you could watch all of Stanley Kubrick's movies twice mm-hmm. in that period of time. You could watch, uh, but you couldn't
1: read. Moby, you could read Moby Dick in that time, right? I mean, you could
2: read Moby Dick plus other books. I mean, yeah. you could read Moby Dick and Crime and Punishment and War and Peace in 60 hours maybe i don't know i don't I, know, I don't know. know. I, I,
1: my you. lips get tired but
2: but the but, but 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 this is my point like or you could watch one show that ran for a couple of years about a uh, dying you know town in 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 the mid-atlantic and this is not as this is not meant as a critique of the wire which i think is great it's easily maybe the 5th or 6th best hbo show uh and and I see what you did there but it's fourth but it but it, but the 4th season i mean I, this is serious the 4th season of the wire is i think the greatest is in the the like top 5 greatest seasons of television of all time and i think it is like a stunningly that's the
1: emergence of Marlowe as the main,
2: well, it, but it's but it's it's the one that's set in the school system. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. No, oh, was really so good. It yeah. it it, it, and it kind of captures a lot of the things that David Simon had been getting at in the Corner and mm-hmm. uh, Homicide. It, it just like captures this idea of poverty as a thing that is almost impossible to escape from if you don't have the right, you know, support groups around you. Um, and I I'm very sympathetic to this argument. I think it's I think it's uh, it is a it is a masterpiece of the televisual arts, um, but again, it's you know it it, it it is it is nestled within sixty hours of entertainment and kind of can't be understood outside of that. Mm. As opposed to say going back to Kubrick, you know you could watch Clockwork Orange and be like, okay, this is a Clockwork Orange, or Doctor Strange Eleven, be like, right. All right, this is these are things.
1: We don't need to necessarily do the whole Kubrick thing to get it. So. Just on a side note, you know how you um said every eighteen months or so, the Star Wars, the Empire is good mm-hmm. argument triggers people. Over the years, this is more in the two thousands when it was still on the air. Every now and then, I would write that I think the show is, if not explicitly conservative, that the Wire is shockingly more conservative than people want to realize, and all these people get so furious at me and they say, you know what I'm saying, Simon's a Marxist, it's Marxist, it's blah blah. blah. And I would always point out, I get that, but like first of all, if you actually know anything about the history of Marxism, there was a lot of versions of Marxism that were more conservative than people realize, right? Because there's a there's a streak of concern, like there's a streak of conservatism that just doesn't like modernity, doesn't like industrialization, doesn't like you know uh, mass culture, right? And I always remember reading in some New Yorker piece about J.R. R. Tolkien who said that he thought that. All factories should be hidden way back in some desolate area, era away from where anybody could see them. That was his idea of how technology should be used, right? But anyway, um the the what 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 liberals who always think they're more radical than they really are, they look at the wire and they see this as this indictment of liberal democratic capitalism and all this kind of stuff. And to a certain extent it is, to be sure. Um and I'm sure that's how Simon sees it, right? But who are the targets of the this morality tale? It's the it's a city that has been run by Democrats for a century, right? Uh, you know, once Garcetti wins the primaries, he says, "Well, are there even Republicans in this town?" Right? It's the union-controlled public schools, right? Um, even the the poor beleaguered dock workers are all part of one of these antiquated unions that just can't deal with modernity cops are all essentially a democratic FDR coalition constituency. There's not a conservative in the movie, in the series, right? right? And their indictment is a classic sort of left serious, radical left, what do you want to call it? Marxist or not, I don't care. Um, Radical left indictment of 20th century urban liberalism. And we're not, you know, conservatives are not part of that indictment per se, right? I mean, the lefties will come back and you say, "Well, that's because you guys underfund it, and you know you don't give them all the money they need." All right, well, that's that's a nice programmatic point, but I don't. This is the world you guys created, where you had all the keys of power, and 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 this is one of the reasons why that that series works so well for why so many conservatives can like it, right? Um, well, the
2: heroes of the show are the small businessmen.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. The the drug dealers, right? <laughs> who, have, who are who are trying to who are trying to create a system that. Uh, uh, incurs less violence and right well stringer bell right, right. well the, the stringer bell subplot is my favorite Mine show. Too. but yeah um but yeah no i mean i like i totally it's it well this is also the girls argument this is ross douthat's girls argument that this is like the not, not so secretly the most reactionary show yeah I on guess. tv of the last you know 10 years or so it's a show about how the modern kind of millennial lifestyle is empty and soulless and awful um do you think the makers of girls see it that way I don't think they see it explicitly that way, but I think Lena Dunham, I mean Lena Dunham is a, you know, democrat. Yeah. She, I've heard, I've heard she's 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 a she's a left progressive democrat. But I think she understands kind of the uh the emptiness of that sort of
1: life. I think she's smart enough to see that. All right, so um I know you were trolling a little bit when you said it's one of the five or six best shows on HBO. <laughs> <laughs> um, but can you name one or two shows you think on HBO that are better? I mean, well, I, The Sopranos.
2: Sopranos. I mean, yeah. Sopranos uh, is better. Deadwood. Deadwood. I think. Yeah. Is, I love is, Deadwood. Is better. I
1: all right. So give me your rough. We're not going to hold you to it, but I know you've been asked to do lists all your life now. Sure. Best TV series of the last twenty years.
2: Uh this is it's such a it's such a hard thing to talk about. One one that I really want to emphasize here, because one of the reasons this, we, we were, we're talking about this is because the Ringer just released a big list of hundred best episodes of TV of all time. Mm. And that's kind of why I was recirculating my piece. And one show that they left off of it that I think everyone should at least appreciate and understand for what it did is The Shield. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shield on FX was basically the first basic cable prestige drama. Um, it it, uh, it it showed that The Sopranos model could work uh, in the basic cable setting. Without The Shield, you don't get Breaking Bad and... Um, and Mad Men, and, and mm-hmm. kind of all the shows that have come after that. Uh, the Shield is uh, so it was on FX from 2002 to 2008, I believe, and it's about a team of vice cops who work LA, and they basically steal a bunch of money, and mm-hmm. they, they they steal a bunch of money, and then they, they in the the first half of the show is them planning their robbery of this like Chechen, I think it was Chechen, money train. And then the last half of the show is them slowly coming apart as they try to figure out what to do with all this cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, Spoiler really, alert. it's yeah. <laughs> really fantastic and, and just just magnificent. And it's one of the only shows from this era that has just nailed the, se- the, the finale. It, mm-hmm. the, seri- the series finale of the show is one of the best. So the list um, was the best episodes or the best final it was episodes? the best episodes, just okay. the best episodes. It's a very weird list. What was their number one ep- their episode? Their number one episode was an episode of Lost. Ah oh, Jesus. It's it was an episode of Lost and it was uh <laughs> it it was uh it was there was also an episode of The Jersey Shore in the top 20. Oh, gee. It was very it was very much a list that was driven by Bill Simmons is the guy who runs The Ringer It's yeah. very much you could kind of see his fingerprints on here, you know, tipping the scale. Uh so anyway, The Shield is a show that I love and has been kind of forgotten. The reason I bring up The Shield is cuz it wasn't on this list. Uh uh-huh. despite being a, a great show, despite being like totally influential it is. It is now kind of largely forgotten because mm-hmm. it's there's 88 episodes. Who has time to go watch 88 episodes yeah, yeah, of yeah. some cop show? Yeah, even one as good as as The Shield. But also, uh, look, I'm I'm an enormous uh, fan of Deadwood. Uh, I was very excited to see that they're making a movie to kind of wrap up. I've got my series. fingers crossed. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see if it's. I mean, it's it's. I rewatch
1: Deadwood once every couple of years. The whole it's thing. It's
2: so good. Yeah. It's a, we're I'm actually rewatching it right now with my wife, and it just is. It's it's so so good. I am a big fan of Rome. I am too. I like. I Rome is. Rome is. You know, it's not. I wouldn't say it's high art mm-hmm. exactly in the way that some of these shows are, but it it does a really good job of kind of getting at the nature of power, I and agree. I, and
1: just really is entertaining. Um, I I I want to give you a second to think about this in terms of other shows that you want to put on. I also I do a thing on this podcast from every now and then where I ask people. What, and it's a little weird, this is a little bringing Coles in Newcastle doing it with you, but, um, what weird view, belief, theory do you have? Because you actually make a living by voicing these things. So it may not work. I'm, I'm wondering whether I should ask you what normal idea do you have? <laughs> um, um, the Sopranos is good. <laughs> um, uh, that, uh, people, that are sort of outside the box, That if, if, if that was the only thing they knew about you, they would think you were a really weird dude, okay? So if you think about that, okay. but first I want to talk about um, something else that matters, which is jo- Charles Hammers' Things That Matter. Um, the Weekly Standard called it required reading. Crowdhammer is the very best, and this is the best of the best selected by him with an engaging and fascinating introduction, amazingly fresh and full of thought-provoking formulations and arguments. I think that's all correct. I think one of the things to keep in mind is that Charles really – he really wanted to set out to write an original whole book, and it was too daunting for him for all sorts of reasons, and it would have taken him 10 years to do. And so instead, he really did put an enormous amount of effort into this book, figuring out which things to put in it. It's not your normal compilation. And so it, so Things That Matter really does cull it's, – it's, it, there's a theme to the pudding is what I'm trying to say. It takes three decades of passion, pastimes, and politics. Um, one of the nation's most cogent conservative voices is how the New York Times described him. It's a New York Times bestseller again. I think it's one of these things when we talk about – when Sonny and I are talking about how things disappear – and Don't Get Remembered, it would break my heart if that applied to um, uh, to Charles, because he kind of is the Jane Austen of punditry of his lifetime. And I highly recommend people get it and have it. It's not to be too crude, because I say this as a great compliment. Um, it's what I aimed my second book to be. It's a great bathroom book in the sense that you can just pick it up, open up to something, read for five minutes and put it down without feeling like you're lost. Um, I know Charles – I don't know if Crown will be happy I described it that way, but I know Charles would like it. So anyway, I highly recommend it. Delighted that they're sponsoring it. So now – Can
2: I just say that yeah. I, I actually just read Things That Matter yeah. like recently, and I, uh, it is as, – as somebody who writes the occasional op-ed, it has been extremely useful for me kind of in just in terms of rejiggering how – my brain works when I write. Yeah, because I like I I, I was uh, the New York Post asked me to write something and I, uh, on um on the Guardians of the Galaxy on James Gunn and I was like I don't do I have anything really to say about this and I like went and I read some Crowdhammer I was like oh you know maybe I can come up with a yeah.
1: slightly different so highly recommended yeah the thing about think- Charles as a writer and I'm a, look I'm a big fan of George Will um, I think all of us talk about how he was the best of the best of the best and he really was a fantastic guy. Um, there was some short shrifting of George as an influential, influential columnist of his, of this era, which I think George would never say, complain about publicly, but Charles, I know, would agree, you know, that George really is, is made a mark similar to Charles's. But the thing about the way Charles writes or wrote, which kills me to say it in the past tense, is that, and it's something I try to do, um, as often as I can, it's something that Michael Kinsley was really good at when he was in his prime. Taking the reader along in an argument, right? Mm-hmm. You could reach the end of a Charles Gradhammer column. You may not be persuaded. You would be wrong if you weren't, but you might not be persuaded. But you couldn't say, I can't figure out where this guy is coming from, right? I mean, he just, he start, it, 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 it was fiercely reasoned from beginning to end. And, and I think that's a real gift in writing to be able to sort of make an argument and take a reader along with you. And it's something that I, Really try to strive. So much punditry these days is just chest beating, screaming, yelling, emoting, virtue signaling—you know, owning the libs and all that kind of stuff. And that was never really what Charles was about. But anyway, um, that was a gratuitous bonus encomium um, for for Charles. So first, what were the what questions I wanted to ask you? I can't even remember.
2: We were talking about great TV shows. Great
1: TV shows. Okay. I would, so. I would
2: also throw Breaking Bad on on my list. I mean, Breaking Bad is.
1: Yeah, so Breaking Bad, which I wrote a cover story for National Review, saying it was the best TV show of all time. I'm willing to defend that, but this is my problem with a lot of these lists, right? Like, I had a book contract in the 1990s to write the, a book on the 100 most influential conservatives of all time. And it was a horrible, grueling thing, which I violated all sorts of norms of both my people and my profession, and I gave back the advance. Mm. Because I just couldn't do it while being a TV producer but also the conceit of it. You know, there were a whole bunch of these books, 100 Most Important Jews, 100 Most This, 100 Most That. And for the 100 Most Influential Conservatives, they wanted me basically to argue that, say, Aristotle was the third most important conservative of all time. And if you think he's the fourth or the second, you're a fool, right? And and they also wanted half the people on the list to be alive. And the idea of switching from Edmund Burke to... Gary Bauer. <laughs> I mean, it just gave me such heartburn. I remember calling my dad about it and just complaining because I was working round the clock on others, as a television producer. And I said, Dad, I just can't do this in my free time. It's just really, really, really hard. And I wanted to do it seriously. And I will say it's one of the things that really rounded out a lot of my conservative self-education is I had to look into this and come up with a theory about why I would rank the people the way I would rank them. And uh, my dad, who was never very... um sympathetic to these sorts of things, said, you do know that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago on a roll of toilet paper in his jail cell.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but he had nothing else to do.
1: Um, But anyway, um, those are both fair points. Your dad and yours, both fair points. So, um, uh, but the problem with the rankings is this idea that by saying Breaking Bad is number one, that therefore I'm disparaging the wire. It's just stupid, right? And first of all, they're just different tastes for different people, different criteria. I go back, when people ask me to make, give my top five about anything, I reinvent... Ah, Anyway, so we had a technological malfunction of epic proportions a moment ago. I don't know where we lost the recording, but I was just saying that ranking art or ranking television shows is inherently subjective. And... Placing one marginally above another is actually not disparaging to the other. It's it's because it's not science, right?
2: Right. Well, I'm a, I, as a as a film critic uh, this is one of the many hats I wear. A lot of the times, people will hear that and they say, "Oh, what's your favorite movie?" And I, that's a nonsense question. How am I supposed yeah. to answer that question? Right. I like, I've, I there are lots of movies I like. It depends on do I want to see a comedy, do I want to see? It? Right. But the answer is uh, uh, the Godfather. Right.
1: So, yeah. Right. No, that, I, that that's sort I mean, of I, 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 like you know what do you like. And there are also just some movies you don't want to watch again. You know, I mean, like that's a good list to talk about on Glop. Sometime is the you're like, I'm glad I saw Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. I can't really conceive of a mood that I would be in that I would want to settle in, maybe to educate my daughter or something, sure. right? But ah, oh, yeah, let me let me get a drink and yeah. settle in for two hours of Schindler's List. You know, almost
2: three. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's that's a brutal one. That is a. Sure. No, I, like, that would be a good list. You guys should do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, Godfather's on, but because I've seen it a trillion times, I want to watch, you know, uh, Roadhouse or something like that. Sure. Red Dawn. Yeah. Oh, oh, one last thing, which I meant to talk about earlier. Um, well, I don't know if we have time to get into it. We don't have much time here, do we? No. I mean, we'll just leave this this really fascinating subject <laughs> for... Uh, what a tease. Um... Uh, it'll join in the pantheon of episode 11 of things that people will never know about. <laughs> um, but, um, okay, so your weird thing, like what, what, what thing do you think that would shock the sensibilities of people? And make and if I said, I know this guy who thinks, X, mm-hmm. what would it, that would automatically make someone think that you're just a strange dude be?
2: That the, the Zack Snyder DC movies are better than the MCU.
0: Ah, jeez!
2: And I don't mean just the Zack Snyder ones. I mean also Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman. Uh Like that whole, that that group of five films is more interesting
1: than the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is it, more interesting because of the challenge that is presented by the fact that DC characters are garbage, and so therefore they have a harder time making movies out of them? Yes. That is actually
2: part of the reason. So one of the reasons I like these movies is because it takes seriously the idea of what would happen if a god fell to Earth. Mm-hmm. If Superman actually showed up on Earth mm-hmm. and started fighting with other Superman, even if you know Superman says he's a good guy and whatever, how would that affect the rest of the world? And the, the answer is it would drive the rest of the world insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole the – whole, uh, you know, some people complain about Batman versus Superman not making sense because why would Batman fight Superman? They're good guys. And if you were the – The Frank if, Miller if comics you, were fanali- if, phenomenal. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. But if you were the most powerful human on Earth, I mean, the rich, one of the richest men on the, on the planet who was also an Olympic caliber athlete who went around his crime-ridden city beating the crap out of people in order to make it a marginally safer place but mostly to get your rocks off – and then this guy shows up, and he's just literally knocking skyscrapers down. It would drive you nuts. Mm-hmm. You would you would find out a way to kill this person uh-huh. because he would be a terrible threat to, I mean, to your sense of yourself, but also really the rest of humanity. And I think the the these movies, the, again, the five movies that have come out, there are varying levels of quality. I think Man of Steel is legitimately good. Wonder Woman is legitimately good. Director's cut of Batman versus Superman much better than the theatrical. Suicide Squad's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Justice League is a disaster. But like they have an idea at the heart of them, and that is something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has totally lacked. Now, the, the average quality of the MCU film's much higher. I'm willing to acknowledge that basically all of those movies, with the exception of like the second Thor mm-hmm. uh, and the second Iron Man, kind of exist within a spectrum of quality that's like three to four stars, mm-hmm. granted. But there's not really anything at the heart of them. DCEU, much more
1: interesting. I'm going to push back on this just ever so slightly. First of all, let me just stipulate my position that the Dark Knight movies are the best comic book movies ever made. Of course. Right? No one denies that. And one of the reasons why is that, you know, like my friend Ron Bailey, who's writer for Reason Magazine, grew up in very poor rural Virginia, and he was convinced that gypsies stole him from his affluent Upper West Side Jewish family and deposited him in the middle of Appalachia right Batman was stolen by gypsies from the Marvel comic Universe he is a Marvel comic Universe conception that just happens to be in the DC universe but also the just the Nolan directing it was just they're better right so um
2: those are also movies with an idea at the heart of them
1: they are for sure for sure and much of it inherited from Frank Miller and all that but the but you say that the, the DC is dealing with the consequences of, of what if a superhero, f- uh, a god, fell to Earth. I agree that's true in the Batman versus Superman thing where you have, like, the pundits talking about, you know, who's he accountable mm-hmm. to, no checks, blah, 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 blah. And I think that's an interesting idea. But you have a lot of that. I would argue sometimes too much of that in, like, the Avengers series these days where, like, buildings fall down, people are killed. The Ultron episode was all about these people who were killed. No, the ultra, the problem with Ultron, the, the problem with the
2: Age of Ultron, briefly is that that is Joss Whedon saying they didn't do enough to save all the lives in Man of Steel. So you have a 20-minute sequence where people are running around grabbing Sokovian civilians and scurrying them off to say, I don't care about that. I'm not here to watch a rescue operation. I just want to watch (laughs)
1: things get punched. Um, Now, listening to your very fine uh, niche podcast recently, I heard you guys talking about Aquaman Mm. and and Shazam. Mm. Can we... Just concede up front that both will be garbage. (sighs) That Aquaman trailer did not look good. No, it it didn't, did it? It looked bad. So here's the thing. Who's the guy, the the Throcky Lord who plays Aquaman? Uh, Jason Momoa. Yeah. He should be playing Prince Namor. And they're doing Aquaman as if he were Prince Namor. For listeners who don't know, Prince Namor is the vastly superior underwater royalty character. Um, He's the the Marvel Aquaman, but he's a good character. Also called the Submariner, right? And... I think that's a fair summary of of Aquaman versus Submariner, right? And so they're trying to just sort of he even leech looks off. more
2: like Namor. He does, which is which is the you know kind of kind of uh, yeah no that looks bad, that looks bad, and it looks bad in like very predictable ways. Like the CGI looks bad, yeah. and fake and terrible. Um, I, I I think Shazam could work. Um, my fear about Shazam is that it my fear and my i i think look I think Shazam could work because i uh, uh, you, you it's hard to go wrong with bit what if what if Superman were big where mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is big right you know uh, like that's kind of an interesting idea okay that's a fine elevator pitch we can do that um my my only real concern with it is that it does look a lot like a marvel movie mm-hmm. it looks a lot like uh, kind of jokey and shticky and um I need dark I understand. and depressing uh-huh. And, you know, the fate of the universe, uh, or not even the fate of the universe, just the fate of the world, kind of.
1: See, but so the irony here, I know Jack is freaking out because we're running really late, but the irony here is that's what Marvel much more is in the comics, right? In in the comics, you know, the classic thing from Spider-Man's origin story is really grim. You know, his dad, his Uncle Ben is killed, and, you know, and, and it's very neocon. With great power comes great responsibility, right? And... There are dark and tragic things regularly in the Marvel comic book universe that they've kind of. Although I, in the X Men, the not the Holocaust analogs come up quite a bit, right? But in the Marvel universe, of course, the X Men, not MCU. I know, I know. So yeah, 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 that's a problem. You know, damn Sony, but Fox, Fox actually, Fox. Fox, whatever, they're all the same to me. Um, well, they will be someday. <laughs> um, so part of it is is that DC is trying to marvelize itself in the cinematic world because Superman is the dumbest dullest superhero of all time period you don't and you and let the listener know I know. i nodding I'm not but this is this is I <laughs> I I
2: growing up I much preferred Marvel comics to DC comics yeah for all these reasons okay the DC heroes are Wonder Woman uh, she's a god she can kill everyone with her sword and her dumb lasso, whatever. You know, Superman is just too powerful. He's just too powerful. It's like, you know, you can only stop him with this rock. Marvel characters, always much more interesting. The cinematic universe is totally reversed.
1: Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll noodle this. I do think that the Aquaman thing is going to be very, very bad, For partly for the reasons that you talked about on on, on your podcast, which is that doing stuff underwater almost never really works very well because it doesn't work very well, yeah. right? And what you guys didn't talk about... Is, did you ever watch the original Linda Carter at Wonder Woman? Uh,
2: I, briefly, yeah. yeah I, I mean,
1: I, Many of my expectations of what women are supposed to look like came from those mm-hmm. days. Uh just happened to be when it was on. But it always, they always found an excuse, shockingly, for her to need to be in a bathing suit. And she, was, she would twirl, and all of a sudden she would be in this one-piece bathing suit with a uh, shower cap thing or a swimming cap, right? Because mm-hmm. heaven forbid Wonder Woman, you know... And so she would jump off the boat into the ocean or into a lake or a river. And then the underwater shot was always in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And you could actually see the concrete walls around the pool, um, which I always thought was like, you know, Linda Carter couldn't rough it once like in an actual ocean shot, but... Anyway, well, thank you, Sonny. Thank you for coming. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. People should definitely listen, or let me put it this way. People should definitely give the weekly substandard a try. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's all we ask, you know? Start at the
1: beginning. <laughs>
2: Work your way forward. Get those nerds! Nerds! Nerds!
1: Alright, so, uh, Sonny has left the building, and, um, I have, now this is a very special, um, we're gonna do some post-game, am- post-game analysis in a second, but this is a very special episode. We're starting what I believe will be a new tradition here on the Remnant Podcast, um, inspired by Jack's time interning for Hugh Hewitt. Correct. It was Jack's idea, so he gets the credit, but I I, um, agreed immediately to it. As some of you may know, we have regular intern. I have regularly have interns here at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, And if you think I've abused Jack, you should just. I could I could fill you in on what we've done to our poor interns over the years. It's sort of like the the interrogation of the of the peasants at Harren Hall by the Lannisters in um season uh I guess it'll be season two of Game of Thrones. Just FYI, neither of us watches Game of Thrones yeah, and we're I proud
4: know. of it. Know.
1: Well, you're fools. So anyway, well one of the things they do in, in that episode is they routinely <sighs> pick one peasant after another. Oh sorry, you, what are you what are you talking about? They pick one peasant after another and they take a steel bucket, and they put a live rat in it, and then they strap it to the chest of the peasant, and then they put a torch under the other end of the bucket until the rat has to escape the bucket by chewing his way through.
4: Yeah, I think that was one of the the methods of torture that was discussed
1: in Suicide of the West. It was, indeed. Um, which maybe that's one of the reasons why Game of Thrones appeals to me. So anyway, this is our summer intern, Alec Dent. Say hello, Alec. Hi. And this is last week here, and so... Jack suggested that, you know, cuz Hugh would he would put his interns on the air for an episode, right? Or well, no, just a segment. So there's there was
4: yeah. mu- there much greater pressure. They, I I got like 6 minutes and just rapid-fire Hugh-style interrogation. Uh-huh. What did he ask you? He asked me um most important thing I learned. Uh he also made sort of small talk based on my exit interview with him ended up being much later. Because I didn't get to do it before I left the show that summer. But then he came back to Hillsdale for an episode of his show. And I showed up looking like a hippie because it was my senior year of college. And
1: I had extremely long hair. Uh, But more like a Charles Manson hippie rather than a peace and love hippie. uh,
4: Well, you know, there's a great argument to be had over what's the difference, really. Yeah. uh, But... And so, yeah, he asked me, in a typical radio format, like, very rapid-fire questions. So, in the podcast podcast format, it is much more relaxed...
1: We're, we're, we're digressing. Yeah, but already I digressing. I'm pressed for time, so let's get right to it then. Alec, how'd you like your internship? Oh, I thought it was a great experience. I, I really learned a lot. Tell, tell people a little bit about you. Where are you from? Where do you go to school?
3: I am from a small town in North Carolina called Lumberton. I go to UNC Chapel Hill. And what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, I would like to go into journalism after I graduate. So
1: I've got one more year oh. of school. And you you interned at... Free Beacon, didn't you? Yes, yeah, yeah, two so, summers ago. So you actually recognized Sonny when he came in the room. Yeah. And uh, what kind of journalism do you want to do? I would like to do uh,
3: opinion writing generally. Oh. I'm really interested in films, So if I could have a, a Sonny Bunch-esque career, that would be great.
4: <laughs> Nick! <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that was an authentic near-spit take. <laughs> I had no
1: idea such words could be formulated in that order. <laughs> um, uh, it's interesting. Um, so what did you learn here? What were your favorite parts about interning f- for me slash Jack at mm-hmm. the American Enterprise Institute this summer? I think my main takeaway was just
3: how much work actually goes into writing articles. Uh, just the incredible amount of research that Jack does and that Jack made me do this summer <laughs> really
1: made me <laughs> appreciate how difficult your job actually is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and it's amazing how much credit Jack takes for all the hard work that you did this. Time. <laughs> uh, and somehow you find a
4: way even to use the intern against me. Yeah. Well, it's not hard.
1: And, uh, what'd you think about interning at AEI? I mean, I thought it was a great experience, yeah. especially the food. Yeah. The food here is very special. We can't let, well, we can't talk about that in detail because the, the peasants would, <laughs> would, would, would encircle the building <laughs> in protest. Um, But no, the food here is particularly for an intern, like to be able to eat that well for free all summer is pretty sweet. Didn't charge you anything, right? No. No, okay. Back when I interned here 25 something years ago, um, you had to pay like some nominal two or three dollars. Oh, gosh. And it was was a huge burden. Um, And um, what was your least favorite part about interning? here in the summer. Careful.
3: Yeah. yeah this is... I think uh, people are going to have to wait for my tell book okay, after cause... the internship ends on wise, Friday.
1: Wise. Um, I mean, a better answer would have been feeling like you didn't have enough opportunities to work even
3: harder. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe all the things on high shelves that Jack had me reach. Um...
4: Yeah. Well, I mean... People have no idea
1: how tall no, you are. True. Listening, that's to. not this.
3: a joke that plays over.
1: Yeah, over podcast. I'm not going to tell them how tall you are. Um, he's tall. So, uh, what do you guys think of the Sunny Bunch conversation?
4: Uh, we we have very different opinions. He was much more reasonable in
1: person. He always is. It's very annoying.
4: Yeah. Um, even even his most outrageous opinions were presented in a way that made you not want to attempt to strangle him for uttering them. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you think? Alec, I, I
3: thought it was good. I'm I'm a fan of a lot of what Sonny writes. I think I think his film reviews are always very good. And actually, Jack and I had been discussing uh, prior to the taping the Batman versus Superman uh-huh. extended cut, which Jack is refusing to watch.
4: Batman v Superman. It's like a, they, they stylized it like a legal case for no reason, other than Zack Snyder's just a pretentious. Well, not even pretentious. He's a would be pretentious director. He's not even good enough to be pretentious.
1: Okay, so did it not occur to either of you what the glaring omission slash lacuna of this week's episode of The Remnant Podcast was? Bigfoot erotica. Bigfoot erotica. The entire country's talking about Bigfoot erotica. Twitter is aflame with a passion that can Aroused, be, you might say. With a passion that can only be rivaled by a- male bigfoot in heat <laughs> <laughs> about the issue of bigfoot erotica which first of all again listeners it's not bigfoot porn stop calling it bigfoot porn it's erotica it's a more elevated thing could you explain what the difference is well I, i've we've talked about this before uh, i but let me be clear I am not a fan of Bigfoot erotica. This emerged, what, episode eight with Andy Ferguson? Mm,
4: no, that. what episode was that? Alec has been going through them. Oof. That that
3: sounds about right, because uh, yeah. it was shortly thereafter that the first on-air reading took place. Yeah,
1: because I, I basically just casually mentioned it. If my memory is correct, I've never listened to this podcast, but my, if my memory is correct, I just brought it up as about how there are weird things out there. Yeah, right? And
4: that was the first one that came to your head.
1: And I referenced Bigfoot erotica and I remember I remember merging it to Andy Ferguson. I don't remember it was the first episode that I mentioned it, but I remember cuz I just remember how wide his eyes got. He no, was, oh I am pretty what sure. have I gotten myself into? That was the that was the Locust Classicus. Yeah. And so so people think I'm a devotee of it, but then it just turned out that by mere mentioning it, the masses wanted to hear more about it. Uh huh. And that's why we did the, the occasional readings of Bigfoot erotica. But I think I got into this before. It's like the um, difference between sexy and kinky. Sexy, <laughs> you use a feather. Kinky, you use the whole chicken. <laughs> um, uh, Bigfoot porn would leave nothing to the imagination, right? And erotica is more suggestive. I think it's more literary. <laughs> um, and... Uh, uh, but anyway, the thing—the thing that bums me out about this entire nationwide discussion of Bigfoot erotica—is that I can immediately tell. Like, so last night I was on special report with with uh, and Greg Gutfeld was on mm-hmm. because he was there to plug a sort of half book he wrote, and um, I like Greg, but it's it's basically a collection of his monologues from the five, and he's going to make a gazillion dollars out of it. But the the subject of Bigfoot erotica came up, and And he started making jokes about it and, like, it was clear that he had never heard my podcast because – and that's that's the thing that bothers me is, like, when people start talking about Big Varaga like they've never heard of it before, it means they are not remnant listeners. And it hurts me. It hurts me – it hurts me deeply because some of these people are my friends. But, you know, you just have to take the good with the bad. Are you more disturbed
4: by the people who are – just now, coming to know what Bigfoot Erotic is, or by the people who knew what it was before you mentioned it on your podcast? Those people are messed up. <laughs> <laughs> like, you
1: know, I'll grant you that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, but since then, I've been testing to see what other forms of, because, like, we could do a whole episode on the weirdness of self published straight ebook stuff. Uh huh. You know, there's like, um, there's a bizarre world of I've I've read that there is a bizarre world <laughs> important qualifier where, you know there's a whole like world of uh Star Trek fan fiction where they That's where that's where um slash fiction began in Star Trek. That's right. Trek. That's right. And then I was explaining
4: this to Alec the other day one of the many important things that I taught him over the summer. <laughs> and
1: but a subgenre of that is where Kirk and Spock are gay lovers. Yeah. Um which, of course, if I were Czar, this sort of writing would be banned, but um it's um it, that
4: would put, that would put a whole new spin on the ending of the wrath of Khan
1: it would, and it would work, right yeah, I mean, it would it, it would it, it very very top gun, right that all of a sudden you realize the real reason why Kirk is crying, yeah, is because his boy toy is gone, you know, yeah. his ears aren't the only thing that are pointy. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you. <laughs> You
4: did not have to go there. Who, which which of us was a 13-year-old boy more recently? Um, Alec, but he's the one least likely to make a sex joke. Yeah, for
1: everyone who doesn't know, Alec is sitting here um, in his bow tie thinking, my God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm thinking that I, I all summer long.
3: all of this research into other types of erotica is going to take place with the next intern.
1: There are you have two days left. In <laughs> um, there's only what I could find on, on Amazon. There is only one... Ebook of Trump erotica so far. That um, will certainly change. I would think so, and I'm not going to do any readings of that. And um, any more readings of that. That's right. That's right. Because um, we did bring it up in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there was that whole acted out thing on episode eleven. But whoa, 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 yeah, it's right. no, 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 We can't. No, no. no. All right. So I have. A, I, I have. A, you're. Have you been on his Youngins podcast? I have. I was in the first and third episodes. All right. So I have a question for you guys. You are you know you are now professional young people, right? Uh, (laughs) Oh, not just young people are professionals, but professional young people. You have a young person podcast, right? I yeah, I guess we do. Yeah. I mean, you're you're moonlighting as one, right? Yeah. Right. You know. So I tweeted, admittedly, halfway through my second martini at a restaurant in in Aspen last week. Something along the lines, you can link to the original tweet, Uh something along the lines of if advice to young pundits, and I think I included activists, but maybe not, if your professional brand, a term I hate, is based entirely on being young, my advice is to move on, is to develop another expertise or skill or whatever it is and move beyond because being young is, by definition, temporary. That was the gist of it.
4: Right? Mm, well, not unless I get some vials of young people
1: blood. That That's I true. I mean, and also Johnny Depp has been young for a really long time. And Keanu Reeves. Tom Cruise. Mickey Rooney was young for a very long time as well. Um, <laughs> and Tom Cruise is the same age that John Voight was in the original Mission Impossible movie. Oh, wow. Which is creepy as hell. Um,
4: yeah, that, that was true. So Mark Hamill was the same age as Alec Guinness in the... As that Alec Guinness was in A New Hope when he was in The Force Awakens. Which I believe also. It's kind of weird to think about, but it also kind of looks... Yeah, no,
1: I mean, Mark Hamill looks like he was, you know, chewed up by a polar bear. I mean, he does not look good. Um, um, he actually, he actually looks like he just got out of a methadone clinic. He's got those watery eyes and he's all sort of like, his skin looks like jerky. He looks like Slavozizek is the weird thing. Oh, there's that, yeah. So anyway, this tweet, which I... And I entirely stand by as advice. It's advice you've heard me give in one form or another, or talk about one form or another a bunch of times. To me, it strikes me as utterly basic and banal, right? If you're part of a boy band and you want to have a long-lasting career in music, you have to sort of move from being a teeny bopper singer, right? If the same thing with if you're if if you're on the Mickey Mouse Club, you got to sort of change your look and. I came to Washington in the 1990s, where Gen X was huge, and all these legacy media outlets were hiring young people to be Gen X like correspondents and Gen X experts, and tell us young waif from the woods, tell us what what young people are thinking, because we cannot understand your ways, right? And the smartest among them, like Jonathan Carl, I'm pretty sure was a CNN's Gen X correspondent. He just wanted to be a reporter, so he worked really hard to not be a young reporter but to be a reporter who happened to be young, right? So anyway, that's where I was coming from this. This elicited so much vitriol and bile and attacks from people, people attacking like, you know, my career, people, you know, going nuts as if I had used their church as a stable or something. And I, I don't understand it. So, young people, explain this to me. What is so offensive of this?
4: Well, I think a lot of them thought that you were viciously subtweeting me. <laughs>
1: No, them. I never heard that from anybody. But and besides, I wouldn't subtweet you. I'd say that to your face.
4: <laughs> okay. Um, Jack did use your tweet in promotion of our latest episode. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, uh, but no. I think the real reason this is similar to the there was a similar degree of outrage when you wrote the article about youth identity politics being the laziest form of identity politics, which it is. But when when you say lazy, people think you mean wow, these people aren't doing anything, which is that definition of lazy, like, yeah, sure, David Hogg is organizing these r- rallies and marches, going on TV a lot. You mean, like, it's lazy in the form of there's nothing, there's, like, nothing less interesting or less harder to earn or achieve than simply your age. It's like, and, that, and nothing that lasts. It's intellectually lazy. Yes, that's... Right. But I, I think that's the, the the outrage for this tweet is coming from a similar place. Yeah, I guess. didn't
1: say that anyone was lazy. I was just saying, like, identify if, if, if you're going to build your brand about being young and you're not Mickey Rooney or Keanu Reeves or something like that. It's a problem. For instance, if you're 35 years old and you're still doing the Young Americans podcast. No, we... My, my sign-off phrase is, don't
4: trust anyone over 30. So once I turn 30, I, I have to end it, or at least rename it.
1: Yeah, or come up with something good and original.
4: Yeah. <laughs> we, we did discuss the eventuality of renaming
3: it. So at a certain point, we will transition to being the middle-aged American. Okay.
1: That's fine. But again, I'm. Uh, let's just say uh, I said to you, I met this unbelievably fascinating guy. Oh, he was so interesting. You know, his background was just so... You know, just in- intriguing, and you say, "Oh, really? How so?" And I say, "Well, he was 22,"
0: <laughs>
1: and then I don't have to add anything. It makes no friggin' sense, right? We judge people by what they use their own intellect to conjure or or explain or reveal, and by the experiences that they have. There is nothing. There's nothing you can tell me about being 22 in a generic, abstract sense that I need to know because I was 22. You can tell me what it's like to be 22 today or what you did, you know, in your previous 22 years that might be interesting or some theory that you have. But somehow saying, if you begin a sentence, as a 22-year-old, I think X, I don't really care. Um, If you just say, I think X, and then X is interesting, that's great. It becomes no more or no less interesting because you say you're 22 or 18. You know, It's, it's... And the the thing about identity politics in general is that you are claiming expertise or authority for something that you had no hand in, right? You know, you didn't make yourself black or white or gay or straight or young or old. You literally just walked into that, right? I mean, and so this idea that somehow it's particularly interesting, it just baffles me. And I don't. And I hate the transitive property of identity politics. I mean, like I rant about this all the time. The greatest generation, if you stormed Normandy, right, and took out a German pillbox, I want to buy you a beer for the rest of your life, right? If on D-Day you were in a drunk tank in Peoria after having like um, tried to have sex with a cow, you're not great in any sense of the imagination. You don't deserve you're no better than, you know, you, you, there's nothing that rubs off on you from what those guys who stormed Normandy did. And there is this tendency, because it's easy and it's lazy, to ascribe attributes to people who didn't earn any of those attributes. And that's my problem with it. But it just as simple career advice, it's just good advice. And I just, I don't, I still don't get why it makes people angry. People are people. That's all
3: I can say. <sighs> And I think in cow sex you may have just created the next big foot erotica for this podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's been done. Uh. <laughs> 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 uh.
4: Oh, can we can we stop this now? I think. All right. So um, we got Alec to say cow sex. And now I've said cow sex. Yeah, you have. Um, Let's just all go around the
3: table and say it to destigmatize it.
1: <laughs> Joan. Um, no, because cow sex, again, is the word. There wrong we go. Word. It's, <laughs> it's bovine erotica. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, anyway, uh, I liked having Sonny on. He, again, I agree. He's far more. Um, He's so much less of a monster in person than he is in his public persona, or his public written persona. Well,
4: Sauron had a fair form as well, mm-hmm. as did Dracula. That's true. Or does Dracula. What? <laughs> we don't know if Dracula has been killed or not.
1: What? Never mind. <laughs> um. Anyway, so, and, uh, but Alec, I want to say thank you very much for, uh, for joining us on this podcast thank you, thank for, you for your yeoman me. work thank you for letting jack take all the credit for almost all of your <laughs> great work um and contrary to what jack may have told you i actually will serve as a reference for you if oh. you like thank you i didn't say a good reference but i will be a reference <laughs> <laughs> um, a reference and uh yes he exists <laughs>
4: um, that guy definitely is not a fake
1: human being and um i do want to get him in a quick plug here some housekeeping stuff the national institute national review institute for those of you who do not know is the nonprofit entity that actually owns the for-profit national review i am a national review institute fellow its mission is to support national review in all of its different ways and uh, it's headed up by a lady named lindsay craig who's doing a, uh, an amazing job and we have these amazing gala big events once a year parties whatever you want to call it um, where we give out prizes William F. Buckley prizes, one in philanthropy and one in, uh, for writing or the arts or whatever. Last year, that was where we gave it to Tom Wolfe a few years ago. I think the first or second one, we gave it to Charles Krauthammer, coincidentally enough. And, uh, this year we're giving it to Edwin Fulner, who for a long time was the head of the Her- Heritage Foundation. And so, uh, we're inviting you to join its host committee as a sponsor of the fifth annual William F. Buckley prize dinner hosted in Chicago on October 18. Honoring Edwin J. Fulner and Karen Buckwald Wright. For more information and to join, please visit WFB WFBPrize2018. The link will again also be up on the um, Jonah com. We hope to see you this fall. Thanks. Um, and other things, uh, please, you know. Uh, it'll be a long time before the weekly substandard or any of these other niche podcasts can catch up in terms of our reviews on iTunes but i am dismayed that that arthur brooks the outgoing president of the american enterprise institute has overtaken uh this podcast um in its itunes rankings and that really cannot stand so please review it subscribe to it wherever uh you can stitcher google play itunes you know i don't I, all those places and again if you like this episode Um, Even if you are vicious Weekly Substandard Partisans, our Twitter handle is at Jonah Remnant. Um, Thanks, everybody. I don't know what's happening next week for sure, but it's going to be exciting. And until then, I'll see you next time.
4: No, you won't. This is a podcast. There you go.
1: Oh, we shall be
0: your friend.